What's up? Hey, this is Crime in the Coconut, as always. It's Ashley's week. I'm Ashley. I'm Amanda. I was just starting to talk to Amanda, and then I decided that we would hit record so you can just listen to us talk more, because you have to love that. One of our episodes, I don't remember which one it was at this point, but it was one of my episodes, and we were talking about how evidence gets all botched up and how stuff goes unsolved. I think that was our first episode, because that was, like, the whole premise of us starting this. Yeah. And Amanda brought to my attention a story that we both knew, but we couldn't think of the name of it, and it was about the missing children from the house fire. Ooh! Yes. I love this one. (laughs) And I heard, I started, like, a podcast was going, and I, like, they said the name, obviously, and I didn't realize that that's what it was, and as I was listening, I was like, oh! This is it. <laughs> so that's what we're doing. It is the story of the Sodder children. Oh, Sodder. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This is a Christmas Eve story. It takes place in Fayetteville, West Virginia. Wait, 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 wait. We gotta clink our coconuts. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. All right, refill. Right, right, right. Oh. All right. Maybe someday we'll get real coconuts and that'll actually be like a nice little knocking mm. sound, but whatever. I always want to bite a coconut. I, I feel like they don't taste good. I feel like they don't taste good either, but I love the how the texture of the inside I know. is. Like it, it looks like a... It's like wax. I just yeah. want to grind it in my teeth. Mm, okay. Well, <laughs> we're learning a lot about Amanda today. So yes, Fayetteville, West Virginia. It is 1945. It's Christmas Eve. George and Jeannie Sodder had ten fucking kids. That's a lot of babies. Yeah. One might say too many babies. That's like 90 months out of your life of being pregnant. Pregnant, yeah. (laughs) At least. That's not counting for maybe being like a week overdue. Yeah. (laughs) One of them was away in the army. That was the oldest one. So he was not there on Christmas Eve night. But the other nine were in the middle of the night. I think it was like 1.30 in the morning. The house is ablaze all of a sudden. What year was this again? 1945. Okay. As the fire is breaking out, George and Jenny leave with four of their children. Mm. So there were still five kids on the inside. And you can only carry so many. Like, yeah. 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 I wonder if there was a bias, if they were like, ah, well, Jack's <laughs> better at math than Susie. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So George, being the father he is, tries to save them. He goes back in. The staircase is completely engulfed in flames. He can't get up there. He is screaming his kids' names, the ones mm-hmm. that are still left. He can't hear anything. He doesn't hear them. Well, it's, have you ever been next to a fi- like a big right. fire? It was like, roaring, yeah. roaring. And so he's like, God, I can't, if, they, if they maybe they can't hear me, maybe they're asleep, maybe they've passed out from smoke inhalation, whatever. So he's like, you know what? I'll climb up through the window. He's like, I've got a ladder on the side of the house. I'll climb up. The ladder he always had on the side of the house was gone, just missing. So he's like, you know what? It's fine. I've got some coal trucks, mm-hmm. which hopefully they're empty, because, like, why would you think to bring a coal truck to a fire? But whatever. It's fine. He was doing what he I had feel, to do. I feel like you don't really have a choice at that yeah, point. Yeah, he's like, like I'm just going to drive Everything's the tr- already on yeah. fire. He's so. like, it's fine. So he's like, I'll just drive the truck up to the side of the house, and I'll climb on top of that, and I'll climb up in through the window. Neither of the coal trucks would start, even though he had used both of them the day prior. So that plan was out the oh, window. I would be so furious. Oh my god, I can only imagine this I, man's like, I've got to get my kids. Hey, like, damn it, the stairs. Damn it, the ladder. <laughs> damn it, the culture. I know, it sounds like one of those, like, Tom and Jerry things. Yeah. Like, And it's 1.30 in the fucking morning. Like, he's yeah. asleep, probably in his boxers. It's winter. <laughs> There's snow. Yeah, it's it's winter. cold. So he's like, alright, maybe I'll just start throwing some water on him. So he goes to the the rain barrel because they collected rainwater he's like i'm just gonna start 
tossing barrels on this house. Maybe I can get it to go down enough so I can go inside to get them. They were frozen solid. He couldn't get any water out of them. This poor guy. <laughs> I know. I mean, at least he knows he did everything he could, or tried to do everything he could. I like, know. So he just stood out there with his other four children and his wife, just in tears, screaming their names in the roaring flames, hoping like it would wake them up or that they could see where they were because they couldn't see oh them anywhere. God. They couldn't hear them. He said his voice, he lost his voice, his vocal cords were ripped to shreds from screaming their to names. To be a fire on the wall. Yeah. And see that. I know. So they're like, well, we got to call the fire department. So his daughter, Marion, sprinted to the neighbor's home to call the fire department, but they could not get an operator to respond because it's Christmas Eve. A neighbor nearby, a different one, saw the blaze and they ran to a nearby tavern and made the call. But again, the operator did not respond. Exasperated, that neighbor drove into town to track down the fire chief. Because mm-hmm. didn't they get lost on the way? Like, the fire department got lost or something like that? I don't that. know if they, or they got took forever lost. Or... I don't know if they got lost. Or no, he... they The Sauter family had no way of calling the fire yeah. department. That's what it was. Yeah, so. and so the, the one neighbor called, couldn't get an answer. Another neighbor called, couldn't get an answer. So the one... The second neighbor was like, I'm just going to take matters into my own fucking hands and went to the fire department because they were only two and a half miles away mm-hmm. from the house. So I love I love the passion in this story. I think I that's why I think that's why I like it so much because it's like these people there's no way that they would have done this. Like they did everything. Everything. They, it's two o'clock in the morning yeah. at this point, Christmas Eve, snowy blowy. And I hope like, all these people went to heaven. They, I, they, they did. They all went to heaven, <laughs> I'm convinced. So they get there, they start the phone tree. So despite the fact that they were only two and a half miles away. They did not arrive to the house until 8 a.m. The yeah. fire started at 1.30. Yeah. So by the time they got there, it was a pile of ash. Right. Nothing. There, there was nothing left. I do remember that. They, they took forever to get yeah. there. Yeah. And, I mean, it was Christmas Eve, but, I mean, as you know, like, police officers, firemen, they never take a day off. There's no. always someone. There's always someone. And they someone. were only two miles away. Like, even if the fire chief just takes one truck by himself, like, get it started. Start the phone tree. I'll meet you there. Like, I gotta go put this fire out. I gotta go save these kids. But there was just no rush. Like, the neighbors could have put the fire out faster than yeah. the fire department could have if they had had the means. So, obviously, George and Jenny, they assume that five of their children are dead. Mm-hmm. But a brief search of the grounds on Christmas Day turned up no trace of remains. The chief suggests that the blaze had been hot enough to completely cremate the bodies. State police inspector combed through the rubble, attributed the fire to faulty wiring. So at this point, George covered the basement with about five feet of dirt. He intended to preserve the site as a memorial for his children. The coroner's office issued five death certificates, despite lack of remains, attributing attributing the cause to fire or suffocation. So I'm going to go back a little bit and I'm going to tell the story of how the Sauter family came about, George Sauter meeting his wife and all of that. Because I think it's important to understand what may have possibly happened here. Okay. So George Sauter was born Giorgio Sodu in Tula, Sardina, which is in Italy. Sodu. Mm-hmm. I like that. In 1895. He immigrated to the United States um, in 1908 when he was 13. His brother, who had accompanied him, immediately went back to Italy. So George was by himself. He found work on the railroads um, and eventually ended up in West Virginia. It was there that he met his wife, Jenny Cipriani, also Italian. She had come over to America when she was three. 
They married and had their 10 children between 1923 and 1943. They settled in Fayetteville, which is an Appalachian town. It's real small, hence why their neighbors were probably so gung-ho to help them. Mm -hmm. And it was also very... Italian. It was a very tight-knit Italian immigrant community. They sound like such a beautiful family. I know. Gorgeous. <laughs> like a gorgeous, just imagine like, the, I'll show you pictures of the kids because there was a very um, well-known billboard put out with their faces on it and they just look like the cutest little dark-haired, bushy-eyebrowed mm-hmm. Italian kids. can only imagine how good their house smelled. <laughs> the Satters were one of the, they were considered one of the most well-respected middle-class families in the community. Mm-hmm. However... George held real strong opinions about all kinds of stuff, business, current events, and politics. One thing in particular that he was very outspoken about was how much he did not like Mussolini, who was the fascist, I don't want to say leader, but he was a leader of some kind, fascist leader over in Italy, who had been executed at this point, but it was still a point of contention. There were people that... Hmm. Followed Mussolini, agreed with him in this community, and George was not having it. And he was letting everybody know that he was not having it. Yeah. So he had a lot of enemies at this point. There was a life insurance agent, I want to say. He, like, came and tried to sell them life insurance one day. And Mm. George was like, you know what, that's okay. Like, I don't need it. And he was respectable, but the guy was, like, very upset. And he knew about, he was also a member of the Italian community, and he knew about George. And he was like... Um, fuck you, George. And word for word said, your house will go up in flames and your children's lives will end. I mean, it's saying that his kids will die, Yeah, that's a little extreme. Yeah. But saying, like, your house will burn, I feel like there's not a whole lot of ways something bad will happen to somebody in the, ni- in the 1940s. Right. I feel like people's houses burning were pretty right. and common. I'm not saying that this guy wasn't threatening them. Right. I'm just saying I don't think it's... It's not like he said, I will kill your family. But to play devil's advocate, too, he was a life insurance guy. Mm-hmm. So that may have been him trying to get a sale. Yeah, like, hey, Scare what if him. his whole yeah. family dies? <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what are you going to do What then? are you going to do? How are you going to pay for their funerals? Mm-hmm. Dude, no fucking house. So there were a couple things that... I mean, that obviously stood out to them. I wonder if he, like, after he found out that the Sauter family had, like, their house burned down, their kids died, I wonder if he was like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> just like You can't see Amanda's face, but she just, like, gasped real small and looked off to the side. That's exactly just, what happened with him. He's just like, oh my god. And he just sat there chain-smoking cigarettes, like, oh shit. So there were, obviously that was a big thing, but there were a couple other things that were kind of happening right before that in hindsight made it look a little suspicious that this house all of a sudden just caught on fire. So for example, the Sodders had planted flowers across from where their house stood. Shortly thereafter, a stranger appeared at the home. Um, He had asked about hauling work. He like saw them doing their flowers and he like made conversation and so he came back to the home and he was asked about hauling work. He made, he like walked to the back of the house and he pointed to two fuse boxes and he said, you know, these might cause a fire someday. You got a lot of flowers around here. You got flowers across the street. That's a lot of like fuel, fuel for a fire. And George thought that's a little weird because I just had those serviced and they're fine. So the electric company just came out and they were in perfect condition. Mm. Um, around the same time, that insurance guy came, and he said, your goddamn house is going to go up in smoke. You're going to... And he specifically said, too, I forgot about this, 
You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini. Mm-hmm. But again, I wonder if that guy, like, if they were together, mm-hmm. and that guy that came out and was, like, talking about hauling work went back and was, like, like, they had it planned to burn these, yeah. this house down, yeah. and they they were trying to cover their tracks, basically, like, this random guy's like, oh, mm-hmm. your fuse boxes look a little iffy. Mm-hmm. That, trying to make a that, story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And remember, this is a small community. They're all Italian immigrants. They all know George. Mm-hmm. There was one other thing that was really kind of peculiar. One of the older Sodder boys, just before Christmas, noticed a man parked on the highway right by where they like came home from school and they were watching the children coming home from school. And it was a regular thing, like enough of a regular thing right before this all went down. So now... Fast forward, all these things are happening leading up to the fire, night of the fire. Mm-hmm. 12.30, about an hour before the fire, Christmas morning, the shrill... Oh, so I'm sorry. I originally said the fire was on Christmas Eve. It was on Christmas night, Okay, if that makes sense. So 12.30, Christmas morning, the children had opened their presents. Um, I mean, at least they got to do that. Yeah, yeah. They had gone to sleep, and a telephone started ringing. It went off. So Jeannie rushed to answer it because she didn't want to wake the kids up. And an unfamiliar female voice asked for a name she did not recognize. Then there was, like, hellacious laughter and glasses clinking in the background. So Jenny thought, this is just somebody drunk at a party. She said, you have the wrong number, and hung up. Mm -hmm. She really quietly snuck back upstairs and noticed that all the downstairs lights were still on, and the curtains were open, the front door was unlocked. She saw Marion asleep on the sofa in the living room and assumed that the other kids were upstairs in bed. She turned out the lights, closed the curtains, locked the door, and went back to bed. She began to doze off when she heard one loud bang on the roof, and then, like, something rolling off the roof. Like, something had fallen on the roof and rolled down off. I mean, I don't know if I would think anything suspicious of it. That's true. I hear some noises. I would probably chalk it up to a raccoon slipping and falling. That's true. That's true. I'd be like, uh, all right. Yeah, whatever. Especially, like, the rolling off part. I'm like, it's down there now, so. Yeah, nothing I can do about it. It's dark outside. An hour later, again, she woke up, and the whole house was in smoke. And we all know what happened then. But, so, this fire's happened. Smoldering ash. They believe the kids are dead, but Jeannie just could not settle with it, and she didn't understand how five children could perish in a fire and leave no bones, no flesh, nothing. Yeah. So she had a private experiment done. She burned animal bones, chicken bones, beef joints, pork chop bones, to see if they would be completely burned to ash mm-hmm. in the fire. Each time she was left with a big pile of charred bones. And she knew that there had been remains of like various household items left over after the fire so she's like if it didn't burn the household items how would it burn there yeah that's let me just say that's badass yeah that's badass if i if like my neighbor was this like super strong beautiful italian woman and this happened and i was like out there watering my plants and she's out there with this fucking bonfire chucking in bones just standing there watching it like like, (laughs) so she reaches out to a crematorium and they informed her that bodies remain in the crematorium for two hours at 2,000 degrees. And I have ashes. And it's it's very enclosed. It is. Yeah. And I have ashes of family members. There are small pieces of bone in there. Really tiny, but they're there. And they Mm -hmm. were not turned to ash. They weren't pulverized. And they were burned at 2,000 degrees for two hours. Their house burned down in 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So, and there was lots of airflow, Mm -hmm. meaning the bodies 
probably wouldn't have completely... I mean... Like, it was hot, but it it's right. not a closed-in metal box hot. When a house fire happens and somebody perishes in it, they always find a body. Yeah. Always. And sure, it's probably unrecognizable. If you don't know who it is, you're going to have a hard time finding it. But they're always there. I wonder if the fire department was also in on it. Like, maybe they didn't support Mussolini, but maybe these Mussolini guys were like, listen, we'll pay you off if mm-hmm. you just take your time to get to the house. Yeah. Yeah. There's... I got some theories at the end here. Or maybe they were like, the kids aren't even in the house, don't rush. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Something. The odd moments started to trickle back to them, and they were starting to put all this stuff together, and they were really starting to think, these kids weren't even in the house. Mm-hmm. They were like, we didn't even hear them. They said most of them were older kids. They would have done something. Yeah, you made, know? made an attempt. Or yeah. They chucked, weren't, they chucked, weren't, like, one of them was, like, 15. Yeah, like, chucked themselves out the window or yeah. one of their siblings or something. Yeah. So they realized that if the fire had been electrical and a result of faulty wiring, as the official report had stated, then the power would have been dead. So how would the lights have been on downstairs in the room? when she got up just an hour before. A witness came forward claiming he saw a man at the fire scene taking a block and tackle used for removing car engines before the fire. So that would explain why George's trucks refused to start, possibly. Now, I couldn't find anything on, um, you know, if they had inspected the trucks to see if the motors were gone or if anything had been tampered with. I think from what I heard about it, that they had been. Yeah. 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 And then one day, the family was visiting, like their extended family, and them, they were visiting the site, and Sylvia found, one of the children found a hard rubber object in the yard. Jenny recalled that thing that Mm -hmm. hit the roof and rolled down, and George concluded that it was a napalm pineapple bomb, the kind used in warfare. So you think they just tried down the chimney or something? Yeah, like tried to just catch the house on fire. Like tried to catch a flame somewhere. Yeah. So, I mean, if the fire's starting from the top down... It's going to be hard to stop. Napalm? Napalm. mm. Which is an accelerant, I believe. Hold on. Keep talking. Hold on, we're looking. Fuel for flamethrowers. Fuel for fucking flamethrowers. I... I thought napalm was very bad for you. Well, it probably is if it catches things on fire. Yeah. Oh, okay. Anyways, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just know it's like a cancer-causing agent. And yeah. I'm like, why are these people just like casually handling napalm? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, feel like back then, nobody really knew. I mean, back then you could, I mean, back in the 90s, Jeffrey Dahmer was able to go buy enough acid to dissolve bodies yeah. at a pharmacy. So <laughs> there was much less restrictions back then. Plus, these people, I mean, if they were Mussolini sympathizers... Who knows what they had at their disposal? Yeah, that's true. So at this point, now there's sightings. People are saying, I've seen the children. Because their pictures were all put out, obviously, like these children were dead. They were in the newspaper. Um, A woman claimed to have seen the missing children peering from a passing car while the fire was actually happening. A woman operating a tourist stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, about 50 miles west of the fire, said she saw the children the morning after the fire. She said, I served them breakfast. There was a car with Florida plates at the tourist court as well. A woman at a Charleston hotel saw the children's photo in the newspaper and said she had seen four of the five a week after the fire. She said they were accompanied by two women and two men, all Italian. She said, I do not remember the exact date. However, the entire party did register at the hotel and stayed in a large room with several beds. 
They registered at about midnight. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to let me talk to them. One of the men looked at me in such a hostile manner, he turned around and began rapidly speaking in Italian. Immediately, the whole party stopped talking to me, and I could tell that I was being frozen out, so I said nothing more, and they left the next morning. 1947, two years later, George and Jenny send a letter about the case to the FBI, and they receive a reply from J. Edgar Hoover. Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come in with the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. So... You think it was a little racist? No, I think it was controversial. And so Hoover says they would assist if they got permission from the local authorities. Mm-hmm. See, I think it wasn't it wasn't um, black and white enough for the FBI because, like, the FBI, if a child is missing, they pretty much always get involved if they're asked. Mm-hmm. But this was... They didn't, I think they didn't want to step on the toes of the local authorities. Because they said they had died. Yeah. So they said, if they want our help, then we'll come. The mm. local authorities declined. They didn't want the FBI. Yeah. So they're like, fine. Private investigator named this name. C.C. <laughs> Tinsley. C.C. Tinsley. C.C. Tinsley. P.I. Um, he discovered, <laughs> he discovered that the insurance salesman who had threatened George, was a member of the coroner's jury and that, that had deemed the fire accidental. So remember when you said that maybe they had been paid off or mm-hmm. that they were in cahoots? He was on the jury that determined it was an accidental mm-hmm. fire. Yeah. He also heard um, a story that the Fayetteville fire chief, he had claimed that no remains were found, but he had been telling people that he had supposedly discovered a heart in the ashes. He had hid it inside a dynamite box and buried it at the scene. How are you going to not find bones but find a heart? Thank you. That don't make no sense. I know. <laughs> so Tinsley's like, you shouldn't have kept that from the fucking authorities or the family. So he persuaded them to show him the box. So they dug up the box, took it straight to a local funeral director who poked it and concluded that it was beef liver and that it was completely untouched by fire. Soon after, the Sodders heard rumors that the fire chief had told others that the contents of the box had not been found in the fire at all, that he had buried the beef liver in the rubble in the hope that finding any remains would placate the family enough to stop the investigation. So he admitted to planting it. Still kept his fucking job. (laughs) but admitted to tampering with the investigation and evidence. Yeah. What the fuck? Yeah. So years go by. Tips and leads continue to pour in, and George followed all of them. He spent his whole life following all these leads. All of them are obviously dead ends. George is... The dad. The, okay, the dad. The dad. He saw a newspaper of school children in New York City, and he was completely convinced that one of them was his daughter Betty, aged by a couple years. So he drove all the way to Manhattan to find her. But the parents refused to speak to him. Now, I can understand, like, a strange man you don't necessarily know is coming to talk to you. Mm. But at the same time, like, the Sodder family, it was probably pretty well known. Like, there was probably some coverage of it. Right. At least give him the closure. Right. Like, you don't have to leave him alone with her. Just sit and, you know what I mean? Like, if you have nothing to hide, let him talk to her. Yeah. Or say, hey, you know what? She's not adopted. <laughs> like, I gave birth to her. She right. can't be your. You know what I mean? Like, it would be very easy to clear that up, but they refused to talk to him. 
In August of 1949, the, dis the Sonners decided to start a whole new search at the fire scene, and they brought in a pathologist from D.C. His name was Oscar B. Hunter. The excavation was very, very thorough, but it uncovered several small objects, uh, damaged coins, partially burned dictionary, and several shards of vertebrae. Hunter sent the bones to the Smithsonian Institution, which issued the following report. The human bones consist of four lumbar vertebrae belonging to one individual. Since the transverse recesses are fused, the age of this individual at the time of their death would have been about 16 or 17. The top limit of age should be about 22, since the centra, which is normally fused at 23, are still unfused. At this basis, the bones show greater skeletal mat maturity than one would expect for a 14-year-old boy, which was the age of the oldest missing solder child at the mm -hmm. time of the fire. It is, however, possible, although not probable, for a boy of 14 and a half years old to show 16 to 17 maturity. So basically, there was no evidence that had been exposed to the fire, and it was clearly not any of the children's bones, because it was older than any of the mm -hmm. oldest children. I feel, I feel like there's a slight chance that it might have been the oldest. Um, yeah. And then you said on a lot of the sightings, they only saw four they of the five. four. Yeah. But then they deduced that um, it probably came... Remember how George put dirt on top of the site to make a memorial? Oh, they said it, it came probably from... came from the dirt that he bought to put on mm -hmm. the site, so somebody must have... That makes me yeah. wonder how much, how much like, random dirt just has, I like, know. other people's remains in it. Just, uh, like, random yeah. little... It also blows my mind how many unsolved murders there are. Yeah. It's like, you think you're safe or you think that it's difficult to get away with mortar with mortar mortar with mortar but it's really not yeah at this point the smithsonian was like okay well we need to bring this to somebody's attention so there were two hearings in the capitol in charleston with the governor but they ultimately ended up telling them that the solder search was hopeless and they officially declared the case closed Undeterred, George and Jenny erected a billboard. It's super famous um, along Route 16 and passed out flyers offering a $5,000 reward for information leading to the recovery of their children. They eventually increased it, increased it to 10000 So then, at that point, a letter arrived from a woman in St. Louis saying that the oldest girl, Martha, was in a convent there. I remember hearing that, too. Mm -hmm. So, of course, George, being the great father he is, went all the way out to where she was supposed to be. And it was not her, ultimately. Just saying, $10,000 in today's money is almost $150,000. Yeah. That is a lot of money. Yeah. And I can't imagine how much money they spent on having all these people come and, like, do all this stuff for them. Yeah. Yeah. Fast forward. 1968, more than 20 years after the fire, Jenny went to get the mail and found an envelope addressed to only her. It was postmarked in Kentucky, but it had no return address. Inside was the photo of a man in about his mid-twenties. On the flip side, a cryptic handwritten note read, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie. L little boys? Little boys? Yeah, little boys? Um, A910132 A9010 or 35. So it was kind of hard to read. Mm -hmm. But basically, it looked like their son aged. He had been nine at the time of the fire. Beyond obvious similarities, um, the dark curly hair, the dark brown eyes, they had the same straight, long nose, but then again, Italians, mm -hmm. they all kind of have that same facial structure. So they hired a, a private detective, 
again and sent him to Kentucky, but he took the money and ran. They never heard from him again. So he either got caught or got paid off with... Yeah. So they don't know what happened to him. I wonder if it was maybe somebody who was in on it mm-hmm. and felt bad for the family and knew that they were still searching or... Yeah. And was just like, well, let me just secretly send them this picture of their son and maybe that'll give them some closure. Yeah. And just start the pot. Yeah. So at this point, the Sodders are kind of starting to get a little afraid because they're kind of putting two and two together that whatever's going on here is very, very serious. And they feared for their children's lives. Mm-hmm. So they were afraid that if they published the letter or the name of the town on the postmark, they might harm their son. So instead, they amended the billboard to include the updated image of Lewis that they had received and hung an enlarged version over the fireplace. They knew that time was running out, but all they really wanted to know at this point was if they did die in the fire or didn't, and if they didn't, they just wanted to know what happened to them. Mm-hmm. George died a year later in 1968, completely still hoping for, you know, a break in the case until his dying day. Jenny erected a fence around her property, and every single year she began adding rooms to her home, building layer after layer, was kind of a recluse. She wore black every day since the fire, and she wore it every day until she died in 1989. The billboard finally came down after their deaths. Um, Her children and grandchildren continued the investigation and came up with theories of their own, Mm -hmm. so I will list them now. We kind of already got to this point, but they were pretty convinced that it was the Italian mafia Mm -hmm. that had tried to recruit George, and he declined. Um, So then they tried to extort money from him, and he refused. So they believe that the children were kidnapped by someone that they had known in the community, um, someone who burst into the unlocked front door, had told them about the fire, offered to take them someplace safe. They might not have survived the night if they had, and if they had lived for decades, if it really was Lewis in that picture, they failed to contact their parents only because they wanted to protect them. So what they're saying is they probably were killed that night somewhere else. That's why they never found their bodies. Mm -hmm. But if they weren't killed and they were perhaps moved somewhere... They were so afraid of what would happen. Basically, the mafia is like, you are with us now, and if you tell your family where you are, we will kill them and you. Yeah, this is your new life. You will always be watched for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. Don't. Yeah. So they didn't reach out, and maybe that's why those families refused to talk to George when he would show up, like, trying to find his kid, Mm -hmm. because the kids knew, like, you're going to die if I talk to you, or I'm going to die if I talk to you. Mm -hmm. So the youngest and last surviving Sodder child is Sylvia. She's now 69, and she doesn't believe her siblings died in the fire. When she has the time, she visits crime websites. Sounds familiar. Mm -hmm. She engages with people still very invested in the story. She says her first memories are of that night in 1945 when she was two years old. She will never forget the sight of her father bleeding because he had, like, scratched his arm Mm -hmm. trying to get back into the house. Um, or how horrifying everybody's screams were. And she says she is no closer to understanding why. Mm. That is the story of the missing Sodder children. I hate uncertainty. I, I hate uncertainty so much. I don't know what I would do. For Let me say, first of all, if you are going to wear black for the rest of your life and go crazy because you miss your kids so much, I understand living, continuing living because you want the closure of wondering what happened to them. But at that point, like, I'm not not to sound insensitive, but just kill yourself. Like, I I wondered why they didn't, and yeah. I it had to be simply because she truly believed they were alive, but and she wanted alive. to see. Yeah, she wanted to see the day that she would know that for yeah. a fact. 
And then they never got it, which is sad. Yeah, it is sad. And it's sad that they didn't leave the billboard up, but I understand that, like, you can't. I mean, nobody's paying for it at that point. Yeah. 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 But, um, so yeah, that was the case we were both talking about that one time where they had no idea where the children went and Mm -hmm. they claimed they died in the fire, but fun fact, bodies need to burn for several hours at 2,000 degrees in a very close space to burn up to pretty much nothing, and even then there's still bones left. Oh, I don't know what I would do. I would be, I would be so angry. I mean, they did the, as much as they could of, like, mm-hmm. they really, like, he drove all the way to Washington and everything. Followed every single lead, like, yeah. and all of them were dead ends. But, like, seriously, at that point, I don't know if I'm just saying this because I'm ballsy right now because I've been drinking a little bit and I'm like, <laughs> I don't, I don't have kids or anything, mm-hmm. but if I was worried about them, like, coming to kill me because I kept searching for this kid... I would do it. Come for me. I would do it. I yeah. would be like, here's my information. Here's where I live. Come here. I'm Show ready up. for you. <laughs> Catch these hands. Like, I don't care if you snipe me through the window. Either I'm confronting you or you kill me first. Like, yeah. there is... I'm not yeah. sitting here waiting. Yeah. But you're right, too. It probably was... I mean, I feel like it was a little bit of a crime syndicate with the Italian mafia. L- law enforcement probably was a little bit prejudiced because mm-hmm. Italians weren't the most favorite, I mean, Italians, Irish, like, they weren't, people didn't like them very mm-hmm. much when they came over, so it was kind of like the less dead situation yeah. where they were not considered a priority, which is probably why all of this was able to happen the way that it was able to happen. I always forget the mafia is a thing. I know. <laughs> it's still a thing. It's scary. <laughs> it's scary. It's I like, I, I live this nice, posh, and cushiony life where mm-hmm. I don't have to kill people for my money. You're not looking over your shoulder every two seconds. Yeah. yeah. And, and every once in a while, I'd be lying if I was like, honestly, if I could just be a little drug bunny. Yeah. And, and look pretty and sit next to some guy while he, like torture some guy and get paid buku bucks for it that'd Mm -hmm. be fine but then i saw the new hitman game and they had girls like that who were like also maids on like this little like cocaine hideout place it was a beautiful mansion Mm -hmm. it was gorgeous these people were partying but the employees there like the maids and the butlers i was like i'd be terrified the whole time the whole time because what if somebody like your drug lord boss pissed somebody off and so another drug lord boss came in and shot the whole place up either either that or it's like if i if they just happen to be in a bad mood, they will not have second thoughts about killing me. Yeah. Have you watched Breaking Bad? I mean, they're just people getting shot and throat slit yes. and dumped in the desert. Like, there's yeah. no remorse. So. But, but like, a, can I do a little cocaine, sir? And he'd be like, ask that again. I'm cutting your fucking tongue out. Exactly. And I'd be like, exactly. Shit. So. Don't... And then you can't leave. You can't quit because then you got to quit. And they're like, well, yeah, you can't you. get out of that life. Yeah. You can't retire from it. All you got to do is try and work your way up. Yep. So, uh,. This is us formally announcing that we will never be drug bunnies. <laughs> just also, I don't even know if that's what they're called. I just kind of... It's a nice way of saying crack whore, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I also probably will never be a stripper. Even though they make such good money, I just don't think I could ever do it. I thought about doing it once. Yeah. I, I almost had an um, audition for the Dome. I'm glad I didn't do it because I went there for a DIY show one time. Mm-hmm. It was not good. Also, too, even if you can get into a good place, like a nice place that's, I don't want to, I mean, it's probably not respectable by all accounts because of the people that come in there, but that is as much as can be professional and respectable for you to do your job, I would be very afraid that I would then be a target of someone very sick and be followed and it's just very dangerous. I don't know if I, I already don't trust people enough. (laughs) I don't know that I would be comfortable Plus, I don't have any self-confidence or body confidence, I, so... I feel like if, 
if I'm willing to stand up on a stage and show my body for money, which uh, doesn't sound terrible, honestly. Like, if I'm willing to go that far, I might as well just try and find a sugar daddy. Like, if I yeah. can just sleep with one old guy who is nice to me. Gold digging is always yeah. an option. <laughs> I would do that rather than stand up on a stage and worry you about my beer danger. belly. Yeah, you are, you are in less danger, and that old guy is probably still going to love you when you have your beer belly. Yeah. So... <laughs> He's gonna be like, oh, I shit myself again. I'm like, sorry, let me just wipe your butt and you can give yeah, me a hundred dollars. Yeah. I would like the sugar daddy without having to provide sugar. I wouldn't mind. I wouldn't mind it. I mean, it, I think it would be okay. I feel like the, the sugar to cash ratio needs to be adequate, though. Mm-hmm. Like, if... If it's like, oh, if you do, if you do everything under the sun for me and I'll give you $20, that's not enough. Mm-hmm. But if you're like, oh, if you just like kiss me a little bit, maybe suck my wee-wee, I'll give you, I'll take, I'll give you as much money as you want. Hell Your yeah. Your salary is $100,000 a year to start. Hell yeah, I'm doing that shit. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, um, I don't know how we got from <laughs> the disappearance and the fire children. of the solder the children to, money. uh... <laughs> Oh, the dichotomy. So, uh, yep, that was a... What a great place to end. I know. <laughs> so good. Um, just remember that gold digging is always an option. You heard it here first on yeah, uh, but Crime not, and Coconut. But not the mafia. <laughs> but not the mafia. Don't join the mafia. It's not worth the money. It's not. Just so I, I don't know. It depends on... I don't know anything about the mafia. I'm not yeah. going to say. Well, you don't want to... At least most people don't want to become a cold-blooded killer. Yeah. But I can't speak for everyone. <laughs> All right. Well, you want to say our plugs? Yep. You can find us at... Crime in the Coconut on Instagram, and if you have stories or theories about the Sodder children, or anything that we talk about, or you want to share your own experiences and stories, you can send that to crimeinthecoconut at gmail.com. Alright, talk to you guys later. Bye! Bye!